Well, let's head into our message today. We're in the Apostles' Creed. This is our fifth week, and today we are going to focus on a very provocative phrase in this Apostles' Creed, a phrase that says, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And maybe you're in here and you're new to our church and you think, ooh, bad week to come. We're going to talk about judgment. The temperature always drops a little bit when we hear a phrase like this, but just let's strap in here. I think that this is for the glory of God and that we always need to hear the truth of Scripture, specifically here. Uh, The creed has done a really great job. This ancient 1900-year-old creed has done a really good job of making concrete and condensed right theology, good belief on who Jesus is. Uh, They created this because they did not have the biblical text that we would, and so they teach us that, that God is Father, He's Creator, that there was Jesus Christ, the Son, our Lord, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, descends, raised from the dead, victory over sin, sends to the heavens and sits at the throne of the Father. And it is from that position that he will come again. So when it says from whence, it's from that position as supreme and sovereign ruler of the universe, Lord over both death and life. It is from that power and authority that Christ will come again, from whence he will come to judge the living of the dead. Now, there are other versions of the creed that maybe you in your studies, I don't know if you've studied the Apostle Creed outside of this, but you'll find that there are different verbiage, different words and different versions of the Apostle Creed. There is a version of the Apostle's Creed that says, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, before you in here who have some speed impairment in your life, begin to think that you finally won something in your slowness that God's judgment is not going to come upon you because you're not very fast, understand that this word quick in its most earliest meaning was defined as alive. And the only reason that this word, the quick and the dead, still exists is because the King James Version of the Bible still translates the word alive into quick. So when it says he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, it is saying the same thing, those alive and those who are dead. And so the early church here is confessing what is the summation of what our scriptures say, that Jesus Christ will someday come again, and that he will judge the earth, that we all will sit on the seat of judgment and have our lives measured towards or accord to our, according to our obedience of Jesus. And we see some of this truth in the Gospel of John and John 5. It's recorded that for the Father judges no one. These are the words of Jesus. But has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. And so when we read this, we understand it is not God the Father that judges, but we will be judged according to the Son. The Son is the focus. The Son must be elevated. The Son is the standard. He must be supreme. And there is a day coming that none of us know or we should pretend to know when he will come again. He will come again. 
and he will come in the same manner that we read in Acts last week. In Acts 1, we talked about Jesus ascending to heaven. And there's two angels next to the disciples say, why do you look into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken to heaven will come in the same way that he went. Jesus will descend in bodily form. John has a vision, records it in the book of Revelation. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica of the end of times when Jesus returns, and they both compel that Jesus will come back in his body, the same body that was crucified on earth. And it is in Matthew that Jesus gives us the clues of what that day will look like. In Matthew 25, Jesus says these things. He says that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another just as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are crushed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when we read in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, about the day that Christ will return, it says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the people of the earth will mourn because of him. On this day, all the dead will rise in bodily form. Everyone will see the descending Christ, and we will mourn because of him. We will not mourn because we regret that we didn't do things in our life. We will regret not making choices in our life. We regret not evangelizing people. We will not be regretting because of fear and worry. We will mourn because we will see the nail-pierced Savior. And what will resonate in our hearts and our minds, all who are gathered there, as we see the scars on his hands and his side, on his feet, the only thought that we will have is, look what we've done to him. Look at what I did to him. 
We will be overgrown with regret and mourning at what we did to him. Because we will see him in his pure beauty and love and splendor. And we will mourn our own efforts that made his death and those marks necessary for me. It is in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, that we will realize the life is actually very different than the one that we're pretending to live. That day will not be one of great celebration, but of mourning at the arrival of Christ. And on his return, he will divide us sheeps and goats. On his right is the bride, the universal church of Christ, those who have professed faith and adoration to Christ. And those on his left will be the goats, those who have been given over to their own minds, their own wills, their own opinions, their own preferences. Those who have trusted in themselves and never pledged allegiance to the Savior. And on that day, it will not be a day of second chances at the sight of Christ. The days of grace will be over. Our judgment will come by what we have done in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for Christ, before that day. We will sit on that judgment seat and give an account for our lives. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What will we what we will be held accountable for, what we will be judged by is what we've done in our flesh. The grace that Christ has given to us will be held in account. Did we, in recognition of the magnitude and scale of the grace that God has given to us, invest it as image bearers back into the world that it may grow? Did we count others more significant than ourselves? Did we care for the burden? Did we care for the widow, the orphan, the downtrodden? And when we hear these words in Matthew, we can feel like Jesus is just making this list of things that I feel I have to get motivated to do. But this isn't a list. This is symbolic of a life in which your affection adores the Savior. A life that faith and trust works itself out to actually being like Christ in our lives. We cannot say that we believe and trust in Jesus if there is not proof in how we live, in the way that God has changed the way we live. And this is what we will be judged by. Now, this tends to be the juncture where people jump off the bandwagon. This is kind of the spot in the Apostles' Creed which I can get around everything else. Yeah. This is the spot in Scripture where people say thanks but no thanks. This is the spot in Scripture where people on the outside who want to believe in God say, mm, I'm not going to believe in a God of judgment. Look, it proves easy for me to say that I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended to hell. Then on the third day, he was raised from the grave. 
ascended to heaven and now sits at the hand of the right hand of the Father. It proves easy for me to say those things and affirm those things and hold those things as life-giving and beautiful as they are because they cost me nothing. And they ask of me nothing. Sure, people will question your sanity by believing in a resurrected king and a God that sits on the throne in the heavens, but it doesn't mean that it costs you anything. And there's no accountability to prove that you actually believe the things that you say you believe. How is one to know that what you confess belief in and uphold as faith is actually something you actually do or just say you do? that maybe you just say you do for reasons that are unknown to anybody but you, that give you benefit and personal gain. But if you say that Jesus is coming back, if you believe that he's coming to judge, it means that you understand that there's gonna be a day that he's gonna confirm whether or not he knew you. It means that what I say I believe will move from speech to sight. And that will require something of you. That will ask something from you. You know, imagine there's a celebrity that you just value and you love. Maybe you have a celebrity in your head. Let's put a name to it. Let's call it America's favorite actor, Tom Hanks. You love Forrest Gump, right? And in your desire to impress your friends and family, you concoct this story where you're really good friends with Tom Hanks. You think by association with him that you're going to be viewed as more important and more valuable. And so you just go on making a fuss out of this. You go to all his movies. You tell all different people about your friendship with Tom Hanks. And then one day, you're in a coffee shop with a new friend from work. And you're exchanging pleasantries. Pleasant, pleasants, that's a word I just make up right there, right? You're, You're exchanging stories of your life. And you find a spot because you want to impress him or her to let them know that you know Tom Hanks. And you go into great detail, and he's asking, or she's asking all sorts of questions, just impressed. And you're thinking, this is awesome. And then at the end of it, delightedly, he looks at you, and he says, you're never going to believe this. Tom Hanks married my sister. And he's going to be here next week. I'm sure he would love to see you again. Why don't you come over? That dinner date will be like our judgment date. The day that we meet the Savior and the true reality of our hearts will be known. Faith will become sight. And like this coworker, real will be rewarded. And fakeness and posturing will be utterly destroyed. Would you make up false claims of kinship with somebody if you knew one day that you would be face to face? And as much as we would like to make this not a reality for the Christian, you cannot read the Bible and reason away that King Jesus is going to come again to judge the world, to complete his plan, to bring all things back to himself in another Eden, in perfection. He must eradicate sin from that equation. And we, in knowing that, want to distance ourselves from it. Last week we talked about the ascension. And we said the ascension is sort of, sort of the forgotten aspect of Jesus' story. That we love to celebrate his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
we don't always celebrate the fact that he's reigning and ruling today over my life. And if the ascension is something that we forget, the judgment is something that we all right want to distance ourselves from. But we cannot remove one single element from the story of Jesus. We distance ourselves from this belief for two real big reasons, I think. Number one is that we just don't want it to be true. We don't want him to come back. We have things that we want to do, people we want to see, experiences we want to have, things we want to buy. To say that Jesus is going to come back gives me anxiety because I'm not ready for that. The second reason we distance ourselves from this idea of judgment is because this word judgment has its own life, its own definition today. We loathe this idea of judgment, and rightfully so. Who wants to be seen as lesser? Who wants to be condemned? And what proves to even be more difficult today is that even if you just have a different opinion from somebody, in many circles you can be considered judgmental. That just not affirming somebody's belief or thought makes you judgmental. And the last thing that we want to do is be called judgmental because it means we are seen as a bigot and one to be shamed. And so we don't touch judgment with a 10-foot pole. It is a four-letter word. It is a leper amongst words. And so I want to speak towards those distancing factors today of why we distance ourselves from the second coming of the Savior and his judgment. It's something that we avoid. It's something that we don't want to speak about. Those of us who are faith and, and proves to be too hard for people to believe in God in the first place. When I was in adolescence, I will just be really honest with you. I remember having a fear that Christ was going to come back later in my high school days. Uh, I had never to that point had a girlfriend. I'm just going to tell you, never kissed a girl. I had all sorts of teenage adolescence thoughts in my head that, craved, that caused an anxious energy about Christ coming back. And maybe you don't share those thoughts that I had back then, or maybe you do. Maybe you want to see your kids grow up. You want to see your grandkids. You want to see retirement. You want to see your career take off, your money come to fruition. There are all sorts of desires and hopes that we want and desire that make Christ returning inconvenient to my situation, inconvenient to what I want. We want to delay, 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 delay. We want to distort Scripture, remove Scripture, change Scripture so we don't have to face that reality. But listen, the unified story of Scripture paints a broad and deep picture of a God who is often misunderstood, but has always worked through his love to bring his people to a place that they may flourish. That they would flourish for his glory to be known on the earth and for their joy. And he has always done that by us trusting his wisdom. God's wisdom is better than our wisdom. And it doesn't isn't just the Bible that communicates that. Every sociological report and psychological report would tell you that God's design is better for this world. His wisdom is better. But not only is his wisdom better, he is better. 
He is better. And not only is he better, but he is our reward. Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. David cries out in the Psalms, who do I have in heaven but you? There is nothing that I desire on earth but you, that my heart and my flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David says, it is good to be near God. He cries out that one day with God is better than a thousand elsewhere. And Paul says that one day, face to face, I will know in full. Friends, God is better. Being near God is better. And there is nothing on this earth, although our hearts may long to want to experience and see things that will ever be better than the presence of God. The day he comes is the day that we are near him. One of the graces that God gives us that goes unnoticed in our life that we don't ever really fully appreciate and thank him for is aging. You know, aging has a way of humbling us. Think about it. If you existed at your peak physical condition for all of your life, what sort of longing or lamenting would you have for something better? Listen, in this culture, there's not a lot of longing or lamenting for anything. In God's good gift to us, he made our bodies age on this earth that we, through aging, might come to the knowledge that there is something better than this, world, this earth, better than this life. You know, yesterday we were at the nursing home and we were caroling, mostly so people could hear my horrendous voice. And it's a joyful noise, right? Celebrate the holidays with. And one of the members of our group approached an elderly lady and she was speaking with her. And this, this, this lady just simply said this, I want to die. That's all she said. I want to die. And we're, we may be moved to sadness, but there is beauty in that confession because that is a heart that knows that King Jesus is better. There are no better words to this woman than he will come. And I know that many of us would like to think that we could have a confession like that when we're 89 or 95, long after our lives are well-lived and had meaningful existence. But there are no promises that were given in Scripture. It says to count your days. And so whether you're 18 or you're 8 or you're 29 or 41 or 68, regardless, he is better being with him will be better. And there will be a day, whether it's in your physical body or when he returns, that you will realize that. And I know that there are many on this earth and many even in this room that get queasy at this idea of judgment. Judgment is a hard word. But let me ask you this. How many of you want justice? Every one of us. Every one of us wants just justice. We all want to believe that the people who do us wrong, who do wrong to our family, our friends, those things that we're passionate about, will receive justice. It's ingrained in your DNA. 
You are image bearers of God. And you were created in the image of God with the attribute of justice. God is a God of justice. We all want God's justice. But what is justice? What is justice? Is it not a judgment on somebody? Is it not declaring somebody guilty? Is it not finding somebody lacking? Every one of us in here wants our God to be just. We want to believe that at the end of the day, if something has wronged us or someone has wronged us, that God will know it and take care of it, whether that justice is poured out onto his son or onto that person. We want to believe that those prison guards at Auschwitz that killed millions of people in the Holocaust that never faced earthly trial will have justice someday. We all want justice, just not God's justice on me. To be found lacking. Today we live in a polarized world in almost everything, and we certainly find it in this arena. We as Christians, as Christians, have polarized ourselves into two different ends of the spectrum, love and judgment. We are increasingly moving to a God that is either all love or all judgment. But listen, God is not found in the extremes, but in the middle. For God to be just, he must be loving. And for God to be loving, he must be just. We should echo the words of the Apostle Paul who says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. The road of moderation is a better road to travel. On the scale of love and judgment, we will find God in the middle. If you were at your home and somebody busted in your house and was destroying your family, would you sit idly, passively by watching them destroy everything? Or would you seek justice? Would you want judgment? I hope that you would find peace and forgiveness and grace. But to think of the Father and the to think that our Father sees his good creation and sees that creation mocking and belittling his holy name, to see the sin destroying people's lives and that sin causing people to destroy other people's lives, to think that that God is not going to come back and have justice on that is utterly intelligent. A skeptical culture asks us, you know, can we trust a God that punishes sin? And we say, Yes, not only yes, but we respond with, we cannot trust a God that does not punish sin to the uttermost. What kind of God passively watches his creation and his people be destroyed and does nothing about it? And so listen, it is an understanding the warning of God's impending judgment that keeps us, that holds us, that there will be a day a day that we will have to make an account. In Hebrews it says, stir each other up to love and affection, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another as the day draws near. If we don't deserve God's wrath, then Jesus died for nothing. But if we accept Jesus' death as the punishment we deserve, we can be sure that God's wrath and judgment will never fall on us. And we praise God as a God of long-suffering ability. We want instant justice. We want instant judgment. But our God has delayed and is patient. In 2 Peter, 
It says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is perfect towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that you all should reach repentance. Our God is a God of long-suffering patience, and we can trust his character. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. You can know God and trust him by what you see in Jesus. And so friends, know this, that there is a day that is coming that we all will sit on the seat of judgment, that our lives will be measured, and it will be measured by one thing. Do you love the Son? Are you loved by the Son? And your words will prove to be inefficient on that day and insufficient because the course of your life will show your allegiance. And as sobering as that sound, and it should be sobering to us, for those who have trusted Christ, who have professed Christ, who have devoted themselves to him, as imperfectly as that may look, that you have tried to walk with Jesus, and maybe that walk has not always been a straight line, but you have walked towards him as best you can, know that on that day you will not cower in shame before the Lord, but you will weep and celebrate the height and the depths of the grace that he's had for you. His grace will be evident to you in that moment, and you will realize just how great grace is, because he will not find you lacking, but he will say, son, daughter, come. The idea of judgment is not something that we put on others. It's not our responsibility to judge others and their lacking. We as Christians want more for people. We want them to walk with the Lord, but the Bible is clear that you will account for one person on that day. You will give an account of yourself and of no one else. We should spend our time weighing our hearts and our minds on what we will be judged by on that day. And so let me end by just being really super honest. I think it's as loving as I can be. On that day, the Lord has said that there will be many that come to him that say his name, and he will turn to them and say, I never knew you. Look, there are people in this world, and, and if you're in here and you're looking over the breath of your life and trying to find justification for that day, I want to be really clear. If there is not a desire in you to be like Jesus, if there is not an inkling of in you to be obedient towards him, if you prayed a prayer long ago and your life looks the same, you should have concern for that day. And that may be the most offensive thing that you could have ever heard. But with all my heart, it's the most loving thing I could ever say. There will be many who perish on that day because they prayed a prayer or were baptized or went to church. But it's not about what you do. It's about recognizing the magnitude of God's love and life and grace and sacrifice and finding ourselves utterly bankrupt in its presence. That I need it and that without it I have no hope. And by it, I have all that I need. 
Friends, when Christ died on the cross, that cross says to me, turn from your sin before my patience reaches its end. Or turn from your sins and I will pour my grace upon you. In light of what we read in these verses, in this creed, we cannot put Jesus on the back burner. He doesn't live there. And as one who walked for years trying to camouflage myself in the Christian faith, gutted with sin, friends, I pray that there comes a day when you realize your utter incapability of saving yourself. That God would beautifully work in your life to say that you're lacking, but I'm not. That you would embrace the story of being loved in the Son, and that you would surrender and humble yourself to his wisdom, his way, and his heart, because it is where we flourish. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your hard truths. We don't like to hear them, Lord, but they are profound. And so, Lord, I just pray today, I pray my own heart, God, that you would break me, that you would break us, that you would help us to see the ends of ourselves, Lord, that we would see our need for you, not just a need to help me live a better life, but a need that I need you to have life. So God, humble us today. Speak into our lives. Prepare us for that day that will come. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So if you're here today, there is no better day to confess faith in Jesus than today. And maybe you have been trying to walk this path and trying to look like a Christian gutted with sin, gutted with disobedience, hiding in guilt and shame, there is no better day to say, I can't, than today. And so if that is you, there is no, <laughs> there's no better way in this moment than to maybe take a step to say, I need help. And you can do that by being prayed for up here. You can go into our prayer room afterwards. You can talk to me. Maybe you're in here today and there are heavy things in your life, heavy things in other people's lives that you love, that you would love us to pray over. Just know that we love to do that. So let's stand today as the body of Christ and sing to our King.